Hey everyone, welcome to the Luminous Podcast. This week I did my first remote episode of the show, which actually went really smoothly. I sat down across the country with Tyler Casera, Senior Director of the Kinetics Department at Tate Towers. They're responsible for some of the most incredible kinetic stage designs and permanent installations in the world, including the London 2012 Olympics, U2, Queen, and Roger Waters World Tours, all of Dead Mouse's ridiculous stages, the win in Las Vegas, so many more absolutely bonkers installations. Tyler and I were supposed to present this year at LDI on a panel discussion on architainment and feature design, but it kind of fell apart at the last minute. Oh well. We decided you should definitely do an episode of the podcast so we could get to know each other and at least talk for a little bit. We had a fascinating conversation and we got into some great side topics about some of his other passions, road racing and spec Miata competitions, maintaining work-life balance, how having kids can change your perspective and your priorities. He's a genuinely cool guy and I was bummed that we didn't get to do our panel this year, but it was great to get to hang out and get to know each other. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Let me introduce you real quick, um, just for people who don't don't know uh, who you are. You're uh, Tyler Casera, and you work for Tate Towers, um, doing their their kinetics uh, kinetics division, right? You're you're the the head of the kinetics division or the director. Yeah, so um, I'm, yeah, I'm the head of kinetics, which which serves as our um, in-house creative team. Um, we do. So we do a lot of, of design work. Um, if you if you think of the design process as, you know, um, the concept design is kind of like negative thirty to zero, and then once there's design intent, that's sort of like zero percent to a hundred is like where you would release parts to the shop to get manufactured. So we work quite a bit in that negative thirty to zero space. Um, that's actually my favorite part. And that's what takes the most time in my experience. It's like you might spend a year and a half talking about a project yeah. before anything gets fabricated. Yeah. And it's probably the most like underappreciated part of the process because, you know, it's, it's always easy. I shouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier when you have context or things to look at and then criticize or critique or build off of. But, you know, a lot of what, I'm doing and, and what my team is doing is really like starting with a blank piece of paper, blue sky, like what's possible. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're right there in the beginning um, trying to create the vision, which, um, you know, I think is a lot harder than people who maybe don't do it every day uh, realize. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's definitely like the first, the first and main step in, in any in any project, right? I mean, you guys have done some crazy stuff though. It's uh, like the kinetic uh, installations that you've done in Vegas and, and all over the place, really. It's uh, yeah, it's um, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I knew about white void actually before I knew about Tate. And then I met, um, I met Gemma, I met Gemma at uh, an LDI. And then I, I looked into the, the work that you guys were done and it was just like, damn, I want to be, I want to be like these guys when I grow up. Yeah, the, um, it's funny how that whole, uh, we call her Nana Witch, um, it's funny how that whole thing, you know, took off. Um, I think we did the, the Shanghai uh, Expo, World Expo in Shanghai in 2010. Um, and this was back when I think FTSI or Fisher Technical had done that um, prior to 
us acquiring um, that company. And, um, you know, it, it's funny because the phone would just continue to ring off the hook for people saying, I want to do Shanghai spheres. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, eventually we, we got to a point where it was like, okay, we need to go design, you know, a product to be able to do this more of this kind of work. Uh, but we wanted to kind of go beyond what had been done already and do something more interesting. And so we started putting, um, you know, developing a, a device that could, could lift and lower, you know, a lit object and do a little bit more in that respect, which, you know, ultimately led to what we did on red hot chili peppers and, um, more recently on some other, on some other, uh, shows. So, so I don't, I don't actually know the Shanghai spheres. Were they, were they illuminated or was it just, uh, they were like sculptural. Yeah, they weren't. It was just a, like, like a four inch white sphere. Um, and so the, it was just this like dance and there was some, uh, dancers that interacted with it, some projection and lighting. Um, and it was, you know, again, sort of, you know, people were barricaded around it, so you couldn't walk under it or be immersed in it. But, um, you know, then sort of the next iteration of it was, okay, let's figure out how we can kind of take this to the next level. Um, and, uh, so yeah. So were you with the company at that time? Were you part of that project? Um, Shanghai spheres. I was not, uh, it was prior, prior, just prior to, um, Tate acquiring, uh, Fisher technical, I believe. Um, and so, so that kind of, I think actually all happened right around the same time as the acquisition, which I was at Tate, um, you know, throughout that period, I didn't have a, I didn't have a direct connection to that, that project, but, um, you know, the, the work that I was doing at the time, you know, Tate as a whole was really focused on concert touring. Um, because that's the main bread and butter of Tate, isn't it? Is, um, it's like live events. Yeah. I mean, it grew out of the, the, the touring industry. So the namesake, Michael Tate, um, founded the company in 1978. He was regarded as the fifth member of the band. Yes. And, um, you know, designed their lighting, drove their van and all that stuff. And that's hilarious. I had no idea that that's, yeah. uh, eventually built a business off of it. And, um, and so, yeah, for until really probably about that, uh, point in time when Shanghai spheres happened in 2010, it was, that was the bread and butter was the, all the concert touring, um, you know, live event, moving shows from city to city every night. Um, and kind of doing the odd one-off, you know, TV, TV award show or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's morphed from that really into, I would consider us a technology company and, you know, work in all these different spaces now, permanent installations and theaters and spectaculars, uh, you know, kinetic architecture. Uh, it's what really, percentage of your, of your work do you think is, is, uh, is focused on kinetics? Like how, how many of the, the projects that, that Tate does is um, directly involved kinetics? Um, at the moment, it's uh, probably a smaller percentage. Um, and part of that is just that I think we're in a position where we're just figuring out how to, how to, how to leverage kinetics and, and what we're doing in the creative space. And, um, 
you know, we're not here to, to own the creative space so much as we have that capability in terms of delivering creative vision. Um, you know, but we also work with other creatives and we collaborate and, um, you know, it's like kind of whatever, whatever is going to, you know, move the ball the furthest down the road as far as a project or, um, the creative. Um, so, you know, we're sort of in the, in the midst of really trying to figure out how to, how to grow that skill set and, um, how to do, how to do more of that work to kind of, to continue to help, you know, facilitate, uh, the, the, really the core business at Tate, which is to be an end to end solution provider. Um, you know, so it's just a, basic, it's stage design, it's stage design and installation design. Yeah. It's not, not even so much stage design, really the space that we're working is, is more in the permanent installs, you know, um, the, the, the architectural installations, um, cruise ships, uh, theaters, opera houses, more of that space than the concert touring. There's, there's really, you know, there's a, a ton of very well-established designers in that space. And, and, um, you know, we work really closely with them, um, on projects. Uh, who are some of the, the, who are some of the stage designers that you've worked with? Um, that that you've really, you've really enjoyed working with. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many of them. Um, personally, I've, I've worked pretty closely with, um, uh, the guys at Stu Fish, Rick Lipson, Mark Fisher, before he passed away. Um, you know, worked with Leroy Bennett and, um, Billy Williams. Yeah. Uh, there's just, you know, there's so many out there, um, you know, that, that, that do great work. Um, you guys ever work with Steven Lieberman? Um, we, yeah, we've, we've worked with Steve before. Um, he's, he's more of a lighting designer, but, uh, he's, he's a, he's a friend of yep. mine and he's a yeah. very cool guy. He has amazing lighting designs. Yeah. I want to say, um, he, he used to do some work for the win or something, I think, um, which yeah. might cross yeah. paths there on that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people out, you know, in the entertainment space who are just doing you know, really amazing things. And we really look at ourselves as just, you know, being there to support them um, in that. So it's uh, a lot of production. I mean, that's, it's, we've been struggling to, to really find that niche or fall into the groove of like production versus design. Cause we keep going back and forth between both, you know, it's uh, we'll do like mostly design on one project and then we'll hop over to doing almost exclusively production and working with a designer for another project. And it's just, uh, there's a, there's a bunch of companies that kind of, um, I see them like straddling that line and, you know, we're a very young company and it's interesting to see how more established companies have, have like made that model work. Well, we're, you know, we, we don't do design for hire. Um, you know, the, our business is built on, as I said, being an end to end solution provider. So for us, it's all about, you know, delivering on a vision, whether that vision is one that we come up with or, you know, we work with somebody on or they provide to us. Um, you know, that's, that's really what our business is, is built on. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're really happy to, to kind of work in any capacity from a creative standpoint. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. But it's very hands-on. It's physical and it's, um, it's like manifesting a vision. I get that. That's, 
that's um yeah that's a similar similar mission statement to what we have but we're definitely focused almost entirely on the permanent install you know it's i came from concert touring and i just don't yeah i find permanent installations so much more satisfying like take your time you know you can really think about a problem and come up with a with a properly engineered solution for it and uh, you don't have to rush yeah the the biggest thing for me that i see like the difference right is that everybody in the concertoring industry you know it's a fairly small community of people of jaded people let's be real (laughs) well maybe but we all uh, i say we all but like everybody that's that's involved right typically we the teams have worked together in the past. There's history, there's trust. Yeah. Um, and there's it's a and small there's, community, man. Everybody knows everybody. Right. And there's, there's, I look at it like there's a, it's a handshake deal in a sense. Um, we have contracts and all of that stuff, but like we're all committed to working together to get to opening night. That's like, that's the goal. Right. And yeah. whatever we have to do to jump in and help each other to get there, it happens. And, and, and that's, that's the end game for a construction project it's like the complete opposite all the companies all the subcontractors they they try to silo and build these walls around each other from a liability standpoint and a scoping standpoint because they don't make money the same way on projects you know a lot of contractors make make their money on change orders they don't make yeah. it on the actual contract well that's not how as a company you know we're used to working or really set up to work. So yeah, that's a part of the process. I don't really like, but um, we come in at the end. It's, it's so slow. It's slow. Miss all that. Yeah. We were lucky because um, a lot of what we do in that space, we're integrated right into the GC and the construction process. And it becomes, you know, something you really have to manage closely to not get burned on. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. Cause I've like felt that I've like, We've started to, we've we've been in projects where that has started to become an issue, but we're still more, like removed enough from that that system that it, we haven't become entangled by it. It's just like it's very very different from you know a concert touring type project. Um, yeah. So yeah. so we you know we're continuing. We do a lot of that work, and we're continuing to to find our way. Um, but for me personally, that's, that was a huge learning curve um, because I was so used to for, you know, eight, nine years of like, hey, we're all marching toward this goal and the world is going to do whatever it takes. And then you get into a project that is construction based and it's like, that seems like how it's going. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, it's like, you know, you're getting slapped with, you know, having to pay for other people's delays and stuff that like just doesn't happen, you know, in, in concert touring. Interesting. Can you give me an example, not like specifics with names or whatever, but like, can you focus in more on and like a situation where that's happened? Cause I'm very fascinated by, um, you know, as we progress more and more into the, uh, like placemaking, uh, feature, feature design, uh, scene, yeah, I mean, what like what's a common what's a common scenario where that'll come and catch you in the ass, and you know, um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's anything from, you know, uh, a, a company's shop drawings not resembling the the as built piece and you know you've gone and designed something around the shop drawings and you show up on site and the thing doesn't work because the as built is different and you know then it becomes a blame game over well like you know well oh i sent you the as built drawings why didn't you look at those and it's like well <laughs> i was building this at the same time you were building your thing how am i supposed to you know be able to 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 uh you know, close those loops. Um, so it's just, you know, a lot of it is, like I said, people are siloed and they, they like to try to, you know, just control their own space. And um, the second that anybody violates it, it's, they throw their hands up and it's a change order. And It's turf uh, war. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Turf war. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny, man. I think it really comes down to communication and we've, we've never worked in we've been very fortunate to work with uh companies and individuals who were on first name basis with you know we we did a project with uh with moment factory where they did the design and then they came to us to to build the physical structure and the structure that they designed um wasn't well, there were elements that were not physically possible and there were elements that were not physically possible to do within the budget constraints, right? But it's like we had real tight communication with uh, the design team and we were all friends. So it, it kind of worked out. It worked out pretty well, you know, in that we got to the finish line in a very like uh, collaborative way. Um, the client got more or less exactly what they had signed up for. We gave Moment Factory a beautiful piece that they could in turn program. And we could all walk away being like, yeah, we built this thing, you know, but it was definitely, um, you know, in that case, we couldn't touch the actual installation. We were working in a union venue. So it was like, we build these pieces, we show up on site, we point, and then a bunch of union guys do the install. But it wasn't a problem because we could like keep a very close eye on on how that process was 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 going forward. Yeah, I mean not not every not everyone is a nightmare. Um, you, just have, <laughs> you just have to manage it appropriately, you know. Yeah, it comes down to communication. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. very much a communication thing. Yep. Yeah, and being crystal clear about what's you know, you're doing what they're doing. And if you have questions, it's an RFI, it's not an email. It's, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole different thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. It sounds like uh sounds like politics to me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, for sure. So, you know, man, uh, we were talking about this a little bit before we started the podcast, but I, I was just, um, I was just looking at, uh, yeah, I looked you, I Googled your name before we started this and uh, found out that you have a long history in, in, in motorsports. Is that like says on your, uh, on your website that you've been, you've been driving since you were six. Yep. That's yeah, ridiculous. It's, it's, it's funny. Um, I think a lot of people do that. They, they, you know, as anybody does these days, when you meet somebody, you Google them and you try to figure out who they are and, all of that and um it's funny <laughs> Only if i'm stalking like, them or i'm about to do an interview <laughs> yeah 
that's funny though because I've I've actually gotten that before where you know like I'll go to a meeting or something and I'll be meeting somebody for the first time and they will have been like prepped with who I am and um like, oh yeah you're that race car driver they're like do you race cars and I'm like um yeah yeah that's that's me I know that when you Google my name that's all you find um but I really do do this other stuff. Um, you know, I didn't think it was you. I thought there was like another, another Tyler. Um, yeah. And then I was just like Tyler, Sarah Tate. And it was like, nah, it's the same guy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the only Tyler, Sarah in the whole country. So it's pretty, pretty much, uh, are you really be me? Yeah. It's, there's only like, um, cause I'm not the only Rob Pope with two B's. Okay. <laughs> Which is surprising. <laughs> yeah. But I, I've, I've, I've found other Rob Pope's. Only a handful of people in this country with my last name, um, and we're all related. And um, to my knowledge, there's not another one of them named Tyler. So um, that makes me the only one. Wow, man! Well, there it's you pretty. Go. It's pre- it's pretty nice when it comes to like domain names and Gmail addresses and things, because I don't have to fight with anybody. You know, like Tyler Casera forty one or anything like that. It just Tyler dot at Gmail. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, but yeah, I know the racing thing has, has been um, – my dad got me into that when I was six. Started racing go-karts and quarter midgets and um, – What's a quarter midget? Yeah, it's like a like a sprint car you might see on like a dirt track of like an oval. Um, yeah. Big wing on top and they slide the cars around. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know um, those things. Yeah, so it's like a much smaller version – I used to race on asphalt. Um, and yeah, so I did that. Really, I started when I was young. And it's just been something I've done all my life. It's been a an awesome uh, you know, way for me and my dad and my grandfather and others in the family to bond and maintain close relationships. And, um, you know, for me these days, it's like uh, it, it's my getaway from work. Um, it's my sort of escape and uh, you know, if you read it all into the flow state, you know, that for me is, is the the thing I get out of it. Um, a lot of people yeah, say, man. oh, oh, it must be like a huge adrenaline rush. And, um, you know, I always no, say it's, it's like the opposite. ultimate focus, right? It's the opposite. You, It's like a Zen experience. You want to be like virtually asleep um, when you're doing it because you want to be just completely in tune with all the information that you're receiving. Um so you have to, you're forced to tune out everything. And, um, so for me, like those weekends when I'm away, you know, doing that, um, regardless of how well I do, um, I typically come back refreshed and it's, um, it, it's a, it's a good way to, to recharge. So this year has been a real year for me to like find those, uh, to find personal balance, right? I think that's super important is to find, um, find that escape and find that, that activity that gives you access to that, that quiet place in your brain, right? Because that, that's where inspiration comes from. Um, for me, it's climbing, you know, I'm very much into climbing. I'm very much into, uh, to like outdoor adventure sports, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely, I was into uh, rally car racing for a while. So I understand okay. what you mean about, um, like the 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 Zen space of complete focus. You ever heard of uh, Dirtfish? Yeah, I did the Dirtfish school up in Seattle, 
And um, That's awesome. yeah, I was, I was into it, man. I was definitely into it. Uh, I've never done any track racing. I've never done um, like asphalt, asphalt racing, but it is, uh, you know, anytime you're driving a car, you know, this massive mechanical object at high speeds with, and you're, you're really, it's a game of balancing traction, right? It's like you're managing traction versus yeah. inertia. <laughs> well, and it's like, it's a, it's a real full sensory experience. I mean, it's you're using your sense of hearing and sight and in some cases smell, um, as well as like, you know, um, you have to have a really sensitive ass, um, in a way <laughs> you got to be able to feel what the car is doing. Like you said, it's a battle for grip and you need to know when the car is on that edge of having it or not. And well, that's where the magic is, right? It's like you push Absolutely. it to the limit until your traction starts to give. And it's like knowing your car, mm-hmm. knowing how it handles, and knowing the surface that you're racing on. Yeah. I think that's why I, I like rallying so much is because that mm-hmm. surface is variable. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like yeah. you can uh, – yeah, it's almost like – it's almost more of a game of braking. Right. Right. Your brake is yep. like the the most important element in uh, honestly i think it's it's true even on an asphalt grand prix circuit um well that's how you steer right the people are people who are good on the brakes typically are they're really quick um and that's there's an advantage there to be in to having that that little edge um that pedal feel like it's um something i feel like i'm good at that that allows me to excel is is on that but you know more so even just like the kind of tie over of my profession and what I've been doing in mechanical design, you know, I'm a trained architect, but like I've really done mechanical engineering for 12 years is what I feel like. Um, yeah. Did you go to school for that? I, I mean, I went to school for, I'm a trained architect. So I went to school for architecture. I have a, a degree from Pratt Institute Institute in um, Brooklyn, New York. And, um, but I always, I grew up building things, working on cars. Just, I've always had a kind of a mechanical aptitude. And, um, you know, when I started at Tate as a mechanical designer, it was like this perfect marriage of the creative process that I had learned in architecture school and my sort of just background and natural mechanical aptitude to design, you know, stage lifts and big, you know, moving pieces uh, you know, rigged pieces overhead and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, but you know, I'm able to kind of channel that as well, even into the racing stuff because you don't just show up and drive the car. Like you try to tune the car and make the car better mechanically, like handling wise and stuff. So it's, it's pretty, I enjoy that part of it too. Um, do you work on your own cars? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and do, it's a pretty essential skill. If you're going to drive a car, you got to know how to, how it, you know, how to take it apart, you know, you gotta yeah, know how it and, works. And you got to know too, that like, well, when the car is doing this, um, that means I need to do these things to the car to get it to do that. And, um, so don't you think that's a good analog for like any, um, complex system that you design? It's, it's the reason that it's so hard to hand off an incredibly complex system to an operator who did not design it. And we run into that a lot. You know, or it's like, okay, you know, you get paid to design these ridiculous things and then you hand them off and it's, you know, there's a million things that can go wrong and do go wrong. And they're generally pretty minor unless you have no idea 
what it's that, that tribe it's that tribal knowledge thing right it's like you on the you hand it over and you give them what you think are all the details but inherently you forgot things because to you it's just second nature but to them they've never seen it before so well it's like um, nested knowledge right it's like yeah. there's 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 um you've got like knowledge pockets at the top but then you in each pocket, you've got sub pockets and sub pockets and sub pockets, and it just branches out into this like root structure until you're all the way at the end, right? Until you're at the actual like the 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 analog power electronic, you know, electrical details of of the elements that you're using or the mechanical elements that you're using. You know what I mean? And you can only put so many of those root branches into a manual. And it's like, well, you know, these problems, <laughs> where do they begin and where do they end? How far down the root structure do they go? Yep. Do you, yeah, run, no, do, you do, um, do you do like systems design or are you pretty much mostly on the creative? Um, I mean, mostly on the creative, but involved in solutions as well. So, um, you know, I think a big part of it for us, because we're not, we're not like a, we're not designed for hire. We're not, we don't operate like a typical architect or the other just straight designer who's going to come up with concepts or ideas. And it's somebody else's problem to go figure out how to go make real or bring that to, to life. Yeah. Um, you know, so we approach the creative from our end, um, always thinking about the solution. And um, so we, we tend to, I wouldn't say that we're bounded by, the things we know we can make um, because I think that's not being true to the creative process, but we're always in the back of our minds thinking about how we would achieve something, you know, as we pitch it or, or while we're pitching it. Um, yeah, of course. So that of a course. lot of the creative conversations we have might be, well, what if we did this? And then usually the second question is, and how would, how would we do that? And, that's funny, man. I've, that's, um, that's the exact, um, flow of how we speak to our clients. And that's like our main value add. It's like, okay, well you come, you come with like a vision or like a concept for an effect. And then we will take that and figure it out. So I guess we're more production, but in the end it's really a marriage of like, okay, you take this seed concept and then you pair that with reality. <laughs> like how yeah. are you going to physically manifest right. this concept? Yep yeah it's um it's a it's a i think it's rewarding to be able to deliver on a vision and not just be the people coming up with the ideas um because i think you know while like i said before i think people probably underappreciate that negative 30 to zero the whole process of like bringing an idea to life is like giving birth uh not that i know what that's like but I mean, you <laughs> well, you really have a kid though, right? I mean, well, kind of know what that's like. <laughs> I kind of know what it's like. I don't know what it feels like, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're really, you know, you're shepherding projects along, you're campaigning along the way. You're, um, you know, it, it's sometimes a labor of, of, of love. It's a love hate relationship in, in some cases. And, sure. you know, but, but when the thing finally is in front of you and it's working and it's, um, you know, we're, 
you know, you're in a, an arena full of 18,000 people and the thing that you came up with goes off or works or whatever in that crowd, like reacts to it. I mean, it's just like, you can't, you can't replace that and you can't put it into words even to almost have it's the ultimate drug man i think that's why we're all in this industry you know yeah it's definitely um, keeps you coming back for sure absolutely man so tell what's the what's the craziest project or what's the most memorable project in recent history that you've done like what's your favorite project that you worked on with yeah my favorite project is probably roger waters the wall um wow i didn't know you guys were part of that yeah so um so that was obviously a mark fisher design from the late 70s and i think they built they built a set for a couple of shows in 1979 or 80 um but it was it was at the time it's like the most complicated thing ever built from a live event standpoint in terms of you know, they built the wall across the arena. There was machinery that stabilized the wall. There were lifts that allowed the crew to build the wall. And at the time, the technology didn't exist to facilitate that being a tourable show. Um, and so then you fast forward to like 2009, basically, um, you know, 30 years later. And, uh, you know, Roger's going back out and he wants to take the wall on tour and, and, and really like we stayed very true to Mark's vision from, you know, the seventies and and that original show. Um, and it was really interesting on that because he had, he had personally like built and controlled a lot of the machinery. He really pushed and challenged us. Like, and there was also for us, like there was no, excuse for why we couldn't do something or why something had to change because he had done it well, describe, describe the mechanics of that uh that show describe to people who've never seen it what, yeah what so was it? so there's literally a a wall um a literal wall that's built across the arena um when the audience walks in the main part of the wall on the stage is not there but it's sort of like a semi-constructed wall then that goes out into the seats and the band plays. And as they play the show, um, there's, uh, there are a series of lifts on the downstage side of the wall that lift the drum kit and keyboards and things up and down. Um, within the wall there, there's a series of what we call stabilizers. And so those are telescopic lifts that go up inside the wall. So, you know, as the show goes on, the 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 crew effectively place bricks in a specific order. Um, the guys at front of house click, you know, a space bar, and that brick that's just been placed, the mask on the projection is is revealed or, or removed, and so the projection is revealed on that brick. And you do that brick by brick. There's lifts just upstage of the wall, which are used to. Uh, shuttle bricks on and off stage and to lift the crew up and down, you know, as they build the wall from stage level all the way up to, um, you know, what was I think 25 feet above the stage deck. Um, and then the band plays downstage of the wall. Uh, and, and towards the end of the show, um, 
the wall stabilizers, which were at one point holding the wall up, you know, because in, in an arena, there's wind um, caused by air conditioning and things. So a wall of that size out of really cardboard foldable bricks um, has no stability. So is that what it was made out of cardboard? Yeah, it's a, a fire flame retardant cardboard. Um, and so the bricks were disposable uh, in that, you know, once one got damaged, they just threw them out. And, um, but they all like broke down and flat packed. Um, and so at the end of the show, the stabilizers that were holding the wall up had these devices in the end of them that at the end of the show would plummet at a higher rate of speed and had these like knockers that would like go upstage and downstage, you know, basically just shatter the wall and the wall would crumble down, um, you know, around. Uh, the stage or on the stage. And um, so some of those bricks would get damaged and they'd have to get thrown out and be replaced with new ones and things. Um, so it was just, it was a lot of equipment. Um, but, you know, fast forward 30 years and the concert touring industry, you know, Tate's capabilities, um, everything was at a point where we actually could take that on the road. And it, and it was a show that could be loaded in every single night, you know, and they could do back to back shows. So um, right. for me, like, so I was the, the lead designer at Tate on that show, um, as well as the project manager. So I had a really close relationship with, um, you know, Mark Fisher on that one and Jeremy Lloyd, who, uh, was working for Stu Fish at the time. Um, did you tour with uh, it or did you just, uh, do the design and, and see uh, it out the door? Did the design, um, I didn't go on the road with it, but I spent, you know, a week and a half in Wilkes-Barre where we rehearsed the show and technically rehearsed it. And, um, I went to probably a dozen shows and met with Roger a bunch of times. And, I was just going to ask um, that you get to hang out with Roger. <laughs> yeah. One of the coolest probably. And, and yeah, one of the coolest stories was opening night in Toronto. You know, we're with the crew who, who are part of the show, actually, like the, the guys, the stagehands and, those guys that build the set are actually the ones building the wall um, during the show. They're, they're kind of cast members um, that they were. That's cool. And, um, so we're sitting, yeah. So we're sitting in, um, in catering. Uh, this is opening night, mind you, like they haven't done a show yet. Um, and I'm sitting with the head carp, Denny Rich, and we're sitting there and there's a couple of the guys around the table with us. And the next thing I know, like I look over to my right and like Roger sits down in the, in the chair next to me and he just is like, how's it going guys? You ready for tonight? And, um, everyone was just like, yeah, like, let's do it. And, um, he proceeded to just like tell crazy stories from when he was on tour. Like it was just a, a really surreal experience. Um, I'm, I'm not like starstruck, but like just the situation I was in, the context of it being open at night, the wall, this like legend is next to, you know, sitting next to me telling these stories. It was just like, it, it felt, it didn't feel real. It was, it was incredible. So I um, hear that, man. You know, it's funny. It's uh, I have a theory about fame, right? And I think that fame is almost like, it's like meth or something. Whereas when you first start you know, if some if somebody becomes famous instantly, 
then it just completely fucks their personality. And you see this, you know, when I was touring, I got to, I got to hang out with a number of like recently famous people. And, um, it was, it always blew my mind how not approachable most rock stars are, right? The coolest person I ever got to tour with most approachable was Justin Timberlake, right? It's like not really into his music, but as a person, he was cool as fuck. He was like, you could talk to him like this. We could have a conversation, right? And it's, um, I remember the first tour I ever went on was, um, was Fergie and the Black Eyed Peas, right? And it was like that tour where she had just like split off from the Black Eyed Peas and gotten like the, the sponsorship from Verizon, right? And it was like, yeah, I mean, you just couldn't talk to her. You know, it was like a completely like, I felt bad for her. I was like, man, you know, you must find it very difficult to like make actual friends, you know, like people who are not talking to you for the the only reason that you're famous. I'm sure Roger has been famous for long enough so that he he knows how to handle himself on that drug, which is fame. Yeah. I mean – I just thought it was amazing that, you know, even on any other given night that he would like stumble into catering and have dinner with, and just sit down at a random table with people, let alone. Usually the catering is shared, right? I mean, it's like, it was always shared when we were touring. Like the catering was like the best part of the tour because it was the same for the crew as it was for the, for the, the musicians that it was for the managers and everybody just ate. You know the crew, the the caterers were part of the crew. Yeah, like you had. I mean, like, just that, like you know, it's opening night. Like I would have assumed he would be like in his dressing room, you know, wanting to just chill out. And um, yeah, yeah. instead, he was just like wanted to go hang out with people. And that's um, awesome. Wasn't with anybody, but in, he just was by himself. He just sat down and just started having a conversation. It was. Oh, it's probably a relief. He's probably like, "Fuck, get me away from all these people!" Jesus Christ. I had to go kick it with like normal people. Yeah. I was surprised too. Like, you know, I, I, because I went, there was some, there were things that we changed on the show and um, added and whatnot. And um, there was a couple of times where I, I would go out to, you know, the Izod Center in Jersey or something to meet with Chris Canzi and other people. And, um, you know, like there was a couple of, there was an instance or two where Roger wanted to like chat about an idea he had or something. And, you know, I like walk up on stage and I, I had to, of course, introduce myself before, but, you know, I go up on stage and he's like, Hey Tyler, how's it going? Like he totally was like one of those people who just, I don't know if he, he's, he is one of those people that can just remember names or what, but like it was a really personal thing that, you know, he knew or remembered who I was. Um, and you know, yeah, I think it's, that's awesome. It's, I wish I was one of those people. (laughs) I can't remember names worth a damn. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm sure he's forgotten by now, but, uh, I'm sure he remembers who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. I don't know. I mean, um, it, it ended up being, you know, like one of the most successful tours and, um, I think in, within the industry anyways, regarded as, um, maybe the best of all time. What, what uh, years were those? Uh, it toured in arenas from 2010 to 
12, I want to say, and then they transformed the hell out of it and went into baseball stadiums. I think um, I saw that at a, uh, I'm trying to remember what festival I was at, but yeah, I'm pretty was, sure I saw that. Insane. Yeah, I saw, I, I saw that festival or I saw that show. I just can't remember where. It was hilarious. So we went to, um, we were in Philly uh, and so they had set the wall up. I hadn't, I hadn't talked to those guys in quite a while, but um, Kansi, the production manager knew I was coming and a bunch of the other crew. And anyway, so I had like a tour pass from, you know, the arena run and all that. And it was hilarious. Like I ran, I, I, I just walked through like three layers of security and I'm like ready to walk down the ramp um, down to get my passes for my family and stuff who were, who were coming. And um, I got stopped by the head of security for, for, from the tour. And he like full on had me by the arm and was like, who are you? Like, where did you get this pass? Um, and he like, he wouldn't let go of me until and it was hilarious because like all these crew guys, like saw me and started coming up to me and like saying, Hey man, how's it going? I haven't seen you in a while. And this guy's like still got my arm. I'm like, like clearly these guys know me. There's like 25 set cards that have my company's name on them. Like just chill out, man. And um, probably new. It's probably new. (laughs) I I don't know. I just thought it was, it was, it was a funny, funny situation. Trying to prove myself to Roger. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I guess that was my fault for showing up with, uh, a tour pass that was out of date, but um, I guess there had like been people, it was all because there had been people on in other cities who had, um, who had counterfeit tour passes, like all access passes. And oh, wow. Um, yeah. Had been caught like backstage. Yeah, you said so, Kate on it, right? I'm sure yours, you well, had your company. It had, and- it had my name. It didn't, didn't have Tate necessarily. Like it was a legit wall tour pass, but um it, yeah, it was just, it was funny. Like, uh, like I got it. Like I, yeah, I, I, but I got through three layers of security, you know, like of event security and they didn't, they didn't stop me. And yet the, the head of um, security for the tour did. So anyway, that was just, you save your, your badges. Oh yeah. yeah. I have them all up in my office in my house here. So. Nice man. Yeah, me too. I keep mine tucked away, but I definitely, the, one of the the funnest tours I ever went on was a was Tool, and that was uh, oh, that's awesome. Back in like eleven, I think. But yeah, I, I definitely keep definitely keep that badge. If for no other reason that I can be like, yes, I did tour with Tool. Here is my badge. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have too many of them because um, I really wasn't in a position like that where I was that. Uh, heavily involved throughout the entire process. And then, you know, there from, uh, uh, you know, opening night or rehearsal standpoint where I really needed a tour pass. So I didn't, I don't really have many from other shows, but, um, you know, because at that point in time, then I started, I took over the engineering department at Tate and ran that for like five years. So, um, so I, I really was like more concerned at, really after that project with, um, you know, pushing work through the shop and um, was less involved in like seeing it through to the end. Sure. Yeah. So that's like mechanical engineering then, right? You were doing like a, yeah. Yeah. So I had, there were like probably 30 designers and engineers that, that worked for me at that point and, you know, just um, tried to provide guidance for them and 
um, at that point was responsible really for everything design related um, that went through Tate. And when I say design, that's more the mechanical design and engineering. We didn't really do any, any creative other than just, you know, collaborating with um, the, the show designers and lighting designers and things, but sure. All um, stage related or mostly stage related. It was all, it was all concert touring at that point. Yeah. And that's, so that's the bread and butter bread and butter is stage like fabrication. Yeah. Production. I would say that's what the company was built on. Um, yeah. I mean, today, everybody's got to have their core business, man. You know, that's yeah. uh yeah. Today it's probably only, you know, half of what we do. Um, but it's still, you know, in that industry is, is still, or, you know, we're still Tate and we're still doing the same thing. And yeah, well, you, boundaries, it's supporting your growth, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what helps grow, grow the company from, you know, just, uh, just the founder to, to what it is now. It's very inspiring. So what's the next thing? What's uh, what are you guys working on now that you're stoked about? If you can talk about it, <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's a tough one uh, under NDA for pretty much. Everything. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but um, no, we're doing like I said, we're doing we're doing creative work in in um, in the cruise ship industry. We're doing some creative work, uh, you know, in the architectural world, um, and um, you know, from a kinetic standpoint you know what i'm what i'm heading up at the moment it's it's really like my my driver my goal in the near term is to to grow 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 the team and grow our capabilities and capacity to to do more of that because um you know really really as i said kind of operating outside of the concert touring space um more so in the permanent world where I yeah think, man, that's, you know, that's where it's at i think there's like a convergence going on right now it's like a there's a there's a merger happening between marketing show production and uh and architecture right where it's like you've got these these the tools of of concert touring being used in architectural installations for marketing purposes like to brand a building you know absolutely it's exciting yeah, or 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 like drive action or you know people to a place um for, for me, the, the whole idea behind applying our skill set in the kind of entertainment-based automation, you know, the technology, the robotics and uh, integration of, of media and all of that is, is really that like the, there's great value in being able to drive people to a place. So if you think about to a, a sports arena or um, a mall or something where otherwise, you know, people won't go or, or won't be encouraged to go much like a concert that, it, you know, people don't watch concerts on DVD. Like they do DVD shoots. It's totally yeah. not yeah, the same who, experience. Who buys those things really? Right. <laughs> but going to a show, being part of a live experience, seeing it, feeling it like that, there's something there that you just can't replace. And so it's how do we, how do we do that? in the built environment, um, to get people to come experience something. Um, and so, you know, like we're doing, we just did the, uh, the scoreboard at Wells Fargo center in Philly where the 76ers and the flyers play. And the whole premise behind that is enhancing the fan experience and to, to enrich that and create something that, you know, 
can drive the energy in that space, like uh, through content in motion um, and other effects that are more, I would consider like show related than traditional, like what you would see on a center hung scoreboard. Um, and, and, and really that can apply across really all of the built environment. You know, the Omnia chandelier that we did in Vegas at Caesar's palace is the same thing. We, we can drive the energy in the space just by how that's used. And um, that thing really was a marketing expense at the end of the day. It has its own hashtags on social media. Like they're, yeah, they all are, they, man. They're all, they, it always falls under the, like the marketing, a, marketing yeah. budgets. A huge number of the people that go to that club, go there to see that and experience that. Sure. And that's, you know, it's because it's, it's branded. That, it's that needs space. Right. It's sometimes hard to quantify what that ROI is going to be, but it's important to communicate that it's there because like these things aren't cheap and they're not free, right? Like, so there, there's an investment that you've got to convince somebody to make. And um, at the moment, that's the hardest part. The rest of it is easy and relatively easy. Um, I think as more of this stuff happens, these kinetic scoreboards and these sculptures and interactive, you know, media installation and things like that. I think that'll, that job will get easier because you'll have more data points to reference in terms of, um, of, of quantifying ROI or at least how to, how to be able to pitch that, you know, to somebody. Yeah. For it, to me, it feels like it's a, the struggle is always, um, like educating the client in a way, you know, and, uh, it's, in every job, a critical part of the process is showing the client how a project like this, how how a a, a place making feature can can provide ROI. Right? What do you think about this in terms of um, of recession? Right? Like everybody's talking to me right now about like, oh, the recession's coming, the recession's coming, and you know, it's it's. Uh, in a way it's 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 true that the first things that get cut are some of these you know it's like we're the the frosting on top of the cake the sprinkles on top of the frosting you know what i mean it's um it's important now more than ever it feels like to to be able to legitimize the the value of what we do just because it could be construed as um as superfluous or, or, um, or an extra. Yeah. Um, I mean, Tate's been around through multiple recessions. How have you got it? Honestly, the, the live event side of our business is, I don't want to say recession proof, but like at least through the 08, 09 one, I mean, our business only got stronger. Um, people weren't taking vacations. They were going to shows. Cause like that was what people could afford and felt comfortable spending money on was like concert tickets. Um, and so the, the, that industry didn't suffer at all. I would say if anything, it got stronger. So, um, you know, I think people are always going to turn to entertainment, uh, and probably more so in times when they can't afford to do other things. So, I think what you're talking about, man, you're making me want to get back into the, uh, into the live production industry. Yeah. I mean, but in some respects, 
Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I guess I guess it, it might be a tough sell in terms of some of this work that we're doing that that you could view as superfluous or an extra or an, or, or a bonus. Um, but I think if people really understood the value of it, they'd understand that that the value of live and the value of experience, and they'd understand that that really this shouldn't be looked at as a bonus. It should be looked at as like the foundation. Well, I think it more and more it is actually. And um, it's just because it's so commonplace now to be almost indispensable. Like if you are building a multi-million dollar property, hundreds of millions of dollars, which is typical, right? And you don't have some kind of placemaking feature, something that differentiates your large building from the next large building, then what are you doing? You know, it, it's almost a, it's a necessity and it, it's a part of the branding, you know? So I, I don't really know. I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, I guess we'll have to see. Hopefully we don't get to that point, but. I mean, it goes in cycles. Time will tell. I think that the key is to diff, is to spread your bases, right? I think that any, every business, right? If they're smart, they spread their spread their bases so they've got you know fingers in a bunch of different industries a bunch of different pies and that way when things dip you know hopefully you can you won't fall through the ice yeah it's definitely um, especially in balancing out some of the the dips and things like that so agreed yeah absolutely you know, I'm mostly, uh, my main focus has always been um, like the control end of things. You know, that's what I'm most passionate about. And I'm, I'm, uh, I was wondering if you had, um, like how much involvement do you have in like the, the control end of the kinetic installations that you guys do, like the media server portion? Um, you know, the, the control side of it, from a Tate standpoint is, is really navigator. It's our navigator automation system, which. Um, it's your, that you, that's your own system, right? You guys built that from the ground up. That's what you use to control. It's yeah. It's a proprietary system that we've continued to develop over time. Um, and it replaces what would typically be like an industrial automation system. It was built from the ground up to, uh, break through those the silos of you know the typical industrial automation where they don't talk to each other they don't talk to really anything else and they're very like rigid um, which doesn't really work for entertainment or live not for modern not for modern show control everything's got to talk to everything right so I mean that's the foundation of of Navigator and um, so there's there's great power uh, in in being able to program a lot of the kinetic work that we do because we can be creative about how we approach that, um, you know, by, you know, pixel mapping something and using black, white values, uh, as a translation for position. And like, that's sure. something that, you know, isn't really new and there's other people doing it as well, but you know, the, the ability for our system to, um, be a supervisory system where it can sit there and be sort of the adult in the room that's directing traffic between all these other disparate systems or 
you know, it can be the system that is physically controlling the winch and monitoring, you know, the speed and the position and cueing, you know, telling things, you know, where they need to be when and syncing with time code and outputting position data to feed to a media server to do real-time content masking or manipulation. Um, so that part of it's, uh, I know enough about to be dangerous um, in how we can leverage it to to make the kinetic work really pop. Um, you know, but, but I just don't have- high level even, you know, it's, I've always been such a sucker for visualizing math, right? And it's like, when you're when you're running generative algorithms through um, like an array of LEDs, right, or or a screen or whatever, it's you're visualizing math. You're coming up with interesting, beautiful math. And when you're talking about uh, a kinetic installation, right, that's a that's an entire dimension of of visualization that you can play with, right? It's like not only can you play with, especially illuminated kinetic fixtures, like. Um, you know, you know the white void guys, right? I think that they, I mean, and you guys also have done amazing examples of this, where you have an array of luminaires, right, which you can control the the color and intensity of, and then you can control their position in space, and it's just like, yeah. holy shit, yeah, mind blowing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to some of the things that, that have been done for a long time now in parametric design, um, you know, like algorithmic design and, and architecture. Do you um, we do. And, yeah. um, but we don't, I mean, in a lot of the work that we do, we, we don't get to leverage it too much. Um, but, but there's tremendous power in that, um, in generating, you know, as you said, kind of translating math into a form or uh, a visualization or whatever. And I think there's, um, tremendous power in, in being able to do that. I think beauty fundamentally comes down to math. I mean, maybe that's too analytic, but like, I don't know, man, I think that most beautiful things can be uh, expressed as beautiful math. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I haven't really thought about it that way, but there's, there's probably some to that for sure. Um, yeah. yeah well, it, symmetry of nature, you know, it's like, it's fractals. Right. Whether, yeah, whether it be, you know, pitch or, uh, you know, just form or array or whatever it might be, yeah, it's um, certainly something that when you see something that has been generated through an algorithm, it does tend to be compelling um, for sure. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Um, how are we doing on, on time? Are you, you feeling all right? Yeah, I'm okay. Let's continue for a little bit. Cool, cool. Yeah, you know, I really wish that um, that this thing at LDI had come together. Hopefully, we can get it together next year. But just, uh, you know, I really like this style of um, of conversation. I think it has a lot of value. You know, because a lot of things come up in conversations like this that that are inspiring and like that may you know make other. When I hear conversations like this between people who I'm who are in my field. I, I have ideas that I never would have, you know, I think that, um, having like venues for just chill discussion, it's super important. Yeah. Um, and you, you pick up a lot and some of the anecdotes too can excite people that maybe aren't even aware of what exists out there. I mean, I, 
got, I got lucky and sort of stumbled into this industry or, you know, I wouldn't, I don't even know what I would be doing right now if it wasn't for that. But how, how did that happen? How did you, like, how did you end up at Tate? Well, I guess, I mean, you're in the same spot, right? Tate is in Pennsylvania, right? Uh, yep. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, uh, global headquarters is here in, in, um, but it's Pennsylvania. Did they like snipe you out of school or did you find them? Uh, it's a funny story actually. Um, so I did grow up in the area around Tate, um, but really the community itself didn't know much of anything um, about what Tate did until uh, I don't know, probably six or seven years ago, we actually like made our first website and um, we didn't do any marketing before because it was not necessary. Uh, and frankly, we, we, we liked that it was, like this sort of secret black ops operation and there was like all this cool stuff happening, but nobody knew about it. So um, I grew up in the area, didn't really know anything about Tate, knew they were, they were involved in, you know, rock and roll, whatever that meant when you were like 17 or 18. Um, uh, moved to New York city, went to school for architecture. I uh, was, I was back maybe spring break of my, uh, final year of school, um, my now wife, uh, who I had just started dating at the time, um, was talking to me about uh, her work that she had been doing um, at, at Atomic Design, which uh, if you're not familiar with Lidditz, Pennsylvania, it's sort of the epicenter of live event. There's probably 35 live event companies here. We have Rock Lidditz Studios, which is a full production rehearsal um, facility. Uh, capable of loading a stadium or an arena show fully indoors. Um, and so that, that all has just more recently come about, but um, uh, she, she had been kind of explaining to me what she was doing. And I didn't really want to be an architect. I sort of knew that about halfway through school. Man, the best architects I know are not architects <laughs> or they don't work for architectural firms. Yeah. But I, I loved like the creative process. I love that, that, going from really what I'm doing today, like negative 30 to zero of like, Hey, here's kind of the problem. Let's come up with us with a solution and we're design and be able to stand up and defend it in front of, you know, a group of peers or critics. And, you know, in some cases get the, you know, get your shit torn apart. Um, and that's really powerful to, to have that done. Um, thickens your skin and, set me up really well for, for Tate. But, um, anyway, I had been back on spring break and ironically, uh, Winky, who's one of the the partners of Tate, um, happened to, and shovel, that's a great name. Yeah. Right. Um, I happened to shovel his driveway as a kid. Um, I was very entrepreneurial, uh, and I knew him and knew he was somehow tied in. I thought what my, girlfriend at the time had been telling me that she had done previously at Atomic was really interesting. Thought it might be a good alternative to going working for an architecture firm in New York or somewhere. So contacted Winky and said, Hey, you know, can I get a, maybe put in a good word for me over to Atomic. I want to apply over there. How did you know? Did you know him beforehand or? Well, yeah, no. So I used to shovel his driveway as a kid. Like he used to live, he used to live like, 
behind my parents' property in a development. And, you know, I, like I said, I was very entrepreneurial. I used to do all kinds of stuff like mowing grass and detailing cars and shoveling snow and whatever I could do to make a buck. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so I knew him from that and, uh, he didn't, you know, he knew me obviously, but didn't really know. I hadn't kept in touch with him. And, um, he was like, well, what are you going to school for? And I was like, you know, architecture, design. Oh, well, you need to come talk to my partner, Adam. He's like, I'm not going to, don't bother with Atomic. Like, you need to come talk to Adam Davis. I said, okay. And so I called up Adam Davis. He was a partner at Tate. And, um, you know, at the time was, he was really in charge of design and project management and just, you know, pr- producing. Um, and so I called him up and he was like, well, when can you be here? And, um, I said, I don't know, like I'm hanging out here. I'm home on break. Like I can be there in half an hour. And he was like, yeah, come on up. And, um, so I showed up, he asked me a whole bunch of questions about like, you know, what did I like to do in my free time? And what's the coolest thing I ever built for somebody else? And, you know, like stuff like that. Um, These things are important, man. If you're going to work with somebody, you have to, you have to want to be around them. (laughs) They have to be cool people. Yeah. But they, you know, he never didn't once ask me for a a resume or a portfolio. He didn't want to really see or know anything other than just ask me these questions. No, dude, are you a cool person? I've never been asked for my resume or asked for my degree or anything. And so, yeah, he, uh, he set me up on a tour. I took like, you know, at that point in time, it was like a 10 minute tour. Now it's like a 45 minute tour, but, um, yeah, I came back. He asked me a couple more questions. Um, and then he was like, he looked at me and was like, so when can you start and how much do you want to make? And I was like, uh, I just came here to like, in my mind, I'm thinking, I just came here to like, check this out. Like, I don't know that I'm ready to like take the plunge and like commit to something. Um, but I sort of thought about it for a second. And then I started thinking, what would an architect make out of school? I sort of threw a number out there and he, and he could tell he like thought about it for a second he stuck his hand out and he was like, deal. Then of course he tried to, then of course he tried to convince me not to finish my architecture program, which I was two months away from after five years of schooling. Um, (laughs) So I was like, no, I'm finishing school. Oh, and by the way, I'm taking a month off after and I'll see you in June. And he was like, all right, fine. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, the rest is history. Like I've been really lucky. I got in when the company was, you know, 50 full-time employees and, here we are in 2019 at the end of the year and we're a thousand worldwide. So, um, Holy shit. You guys have a thousand people working for you guys. Yep. Wow. Full time. So it's, uh, it's crazy. And we're, where do you have offices? You guys are all over the place, huh? All over. Lidditz is global headquarters. We probably have half a million square feet here. Um, there's another probably close to three, 400 people in the UK. Um, across a couple of different offices in Wembley and Haverhill and um, Wakefield. And then there's- I hope you uh, got stock. I hope yeah. you got stock when you joined. <laughs> yeah. There's um, Middle East. Uh, we have a whole Southeast Asia division as well. Um, we do a lot of work over there in theme parks and things. Yeah. Um, 
and so yeah, we're we're and then we have a an office in Vegas as well that Gemma works out of, and she is uh, she's the VP of Sales for permanent installation, and and in particular, we have an office there to support you know all the shows on the strip. I think we've got show control and mechanics in every single one of them, um, maybe with the exception of one at the moment. So uh, we have an office there to, to just support that because there's such a high density of, of uh, automation equipment um, operating on the strip every night. I mean, Vegas is definitely the place as far as show production goes, permanent show production, especially it's some of my favorite examples of kinetic art are Cirque du Soleil. I love, I love those. I love those shows. I really do. I think they're, they're some of the most amazing examples of um, dynamic stages in the world. Yep. Yeah. They do some, some pretty incredible work and creative work. Um, I think, I think the statistic is any of those shows. um, Me personally, I'm not. Um, That's really more kind of Gemma's world than the the PI team's world. Um, I think the statistic is we have like a over a thousand axes of motion running on the strip um, on any given night. Um, So it's a pretty staggering number when you think about it in terms of all the stuff that can go wrong. Um, Yeah. Well, it's such a cool, uh, it's such a cool niche. You know, you've taken motion control and made it your own and also made it cool. And like, it's, it's sexy. It's beautiful. Yeah. And hopefully flexible and repeatable and, you know, something that, you know, can help other creative people envision and create something, you know, in a way. It doesn't kill anybody. That's all secondary. Yeah. Um, but we look at what we do as providing a toolkit in a way, you know, for lighting designers to program lights in motion and content and all that stuff to work together. You know, you have to be yeah. flexible to make that all happen. Do you get to travel to the different installations? Do you get to travel period for work? Is that like a big part of what you do or are you pretty much in Pennsylvania? No, I, I personally travel, I travel quite a bit um, more so because I'm, I tend to be, more client facing on the creative side, um, doing a lot of the kind of sitting with clients and other creatives and napkin sketching and, you know, blue sky conversations of what, what we could do and trying to inspire people. Um, and so I do a lot of traveling to, to do those kinds of, of projects, um, or at least that kind of work. Um, yeah. And, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, Asia, the Americas, all that stuff. So it's pretty much anywhere, anywhere the work is, I will go. That's cool. My, my goal this year is to spend about six months out of, uh, out of the country. We're getting to a point now where there's enough people based here in the Bay area to handle the production and the, the boots on the ground project management. And I can focus much more on sales and, drumming up business and um i've been focusing a lot on on europe and uh and asia and just making alliances you know like making friends making making connections with other people in the industry and it's uh it's fun man I'll, travel is a huge part of my life yeah i mean for me i i was always um the travel was a you know i should say in the beginning it, it, it's a perk and then it becomes a curse um in a sense uh, especially when you have a 
14 month old and a wife who, um, you know, you're leaving behind and stuff. So, um, it's, right. it's tough, tough at times, but the good news is they're pretty understanding. For me, it's just like, I, I want to be here to, to see all the, the cool stuff that, you know, my daughter does. And, um, so you said 14, 14 months old. Yeah. Like at a point where she's taking steps, but isn't quite walking yet. Um, and she's, uh, got to a point where she's, you know, her personality's coming through and it's just, it's a lot of fun. I, I really look forward at the end of the day to coming home and playing with her and hanging out. And, That's um, awesome, man. It's the ultimate art project, right? It's like yeah, the, it's, 20 year, the 20 year long art project. It is incredible how much they pick up. Like she, I didn't even think about it, but like the other night she was doing something funny where anytime she hears a noise that she doesn't recognize, she, she kind of does this like, what's that? Like, what's that noise? She makes this like, what's that? And, right. um, and so I think they're doing, so transparent, right? Their faces. You're just like, Oh, I know what you're yeah. thinking. Yeah. I, I know. Like I don't, you almost like don't have to know. They don't have to be able to say it verbatim, but you get it anyway. So she does this and like, you know, like when somebody says like, what's that? And, uh, you kind of like, Oh, like look around. Um, all of a sudden, like the other day I noticed that like, she just started like whipping her head around. And then I put two and two together that like the other night she was doing like, what's that to a couple of noises that she heard. And I was sort of like just goofing around, sort of like, like looking around and like, she totally picked it up from that. And that's like one little thing that I did. Um, and I just soak it all up. Oh my God. It's like, it's incredible. So you like all of a sudden it makes you think like, I need to be like careful what I say, what I do. <laughs> Yeah. She's just going to, you're going to be, you're going to be an influence one way or the other. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. I know just how much influence you do have. Um, I mean, to some degree they're going to be their own person and they're wired a certain way and whatnot. But like you do at this age have control over some of their behaviors and their actions and the little quirks of like what you see come out. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. That's really cool. Well, congratulations on that. That sounds, I am not a parent, but maybe someday I will be. Uh, my brother just had a baby, my niece, and she's such a trip. But um, it makes you like grateful or it makes you very aware of how your own parents affected your life growing up, right? It's like now as like a 30-something-year-old adult, I can look back at uh, like my my teenage years and be like, wow. You know, I was, I was lucky <laughs> to not have parents that completely yeah, fucked me yeah. up. <laughs> it's really interesting, you know, like that you say that because I had a similar experience, like the first couple of times that we, like my parents would watch my daughter and when she was really little um, and seeing like my dad, for example, like we'd go over to their house and she'd be asleep on him watching TV and just how he would like rub her like back and stuff. It It's like weird. It's like almost like an out of body experience. Like I'm seeing that like her as me, like, yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, you oh, know, cause like, what it was like, like, right. Like I don't remember that. I can't like relive that. But like all of a sudden now with him and her, it's like, I can almost like, this is, 
you know, that's what it was like when I was like her age or size or whatever. And um, so it's just really interesting. It's like, it does make you, gives you a different perspective on parents and the, you know, job they did and all that. So um, it definitely opens your eyes to a lot of things you maybe otherwise hadn't thought about or, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have thought about had you not, you know, been a parent yourself now. It's hilarious watching my parents with uh, with my niece, and I'm like looking at my parents and be like, "Oh my god, my parents are old. <laughs> my parents are grandparents now," <laughs> and yeah. they like take on that. Uh, they definitely like take on the mannerisms. Like all of a sudden, they like they like look like grandparents, and it's like I don't know exactly when that switch happened, but, well, but now the real question is though, like, are they grandparents or are they just parents? Like, is that like I said, like were they like that? when your niece was you or you know like, yeah, maybe i don't like know that's, that's, maybe that's sort of like that changed right those are like the things that were like going through my head um of like wow all of a sudden now i feel like i'm seeing myself you know 34 years ago or whatever and yeah it's just kind of a it's a different it's a different perspective for sure do you get to hang out with your parents pretty frequently are they they must be pretty close yeah yeah, they're like they live about twenty five minutes from from us. Um, oh damn, that's like right next door. Yeah, relatively speaking, um, my parents are literally on the other side of the country, but they still make it out. Like they come out pretty frequently, especially now that my niece is is happening. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's um, that's going to get people on a plane pretty often. I would imagine. Um, yeah, man. I mean, you gotta, I, mean, I do. You gotta keep up because those, you know, they grow up so fast. Yeah. It's a thing. yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I spent a lot of time with my dad on the racing side of things, and um, uh, my mom watches my daughter once a week. So sometimes I pick her up, and we'll do dinner and things like that. Sometimes, so yeah, we're we're pretty close. We um, we see each other relatively relatively frequently. I would say. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. I think it's important to have, um, to be tight with your parents to some degree, you know, if possible. I know it's not possible for everybody, but um, that's something that I definitely value in my life is like still being able to like be friends with my parents, even, you know, like I can talk to my parents about pretty much whatever. And they're, yeah. you know, I don't feel like a lot of people I feel like have um, kind of judgy parents, which, which I think can, that's part of what can fuck somebody up growing up is having like really judgmental parents. I think that like, if I have kids, I'm going to try and keep that in mind, you know, as they grow up, it's just like, you know, whatever. Cause I was, you know, when I got out of college, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, I'm going to be a VJ when I grow up. And my parents are like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but you know, it's, it brought me here. So it's good. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes parents make today is they, they try to be friends with their kids, um, too early, um, when they still have to be their parents. Um, right. and that makes well, that need structure too, right? Makes, it makes doing that parent job really difficult. And so, um, yeah, that's where like, uh, you know, my parents are, they were parents. I mean, when I was growing up, it, I had a yeah, but they really, still stuck you behind the wheel of a car and taught you to drive at six. That's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. But like at the same time, you know, they made you yeah, wear your seatbelt. Well, <laughs> or just make sure that like 
you know, I had to get a job and all that stuff. Like I had a good, I had a good upbringing, but at the same time I was taught the value of money and what it meant to do hard work and all that. So that, that I think really good values in in me and hopefully something I can pass on. Yeah. No, you sound like you, you got your head firmly screwed on, man. I'm sure that your, your daughter is going to be super cool. It's like a whole different pressure, right? It's like Just keep keep her away from concert touring. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's funny, man. It's uh it's you, you look at kids who grew up in super conservative families and they're just like the most you know, like they're some of the most like creative wild people. And then you look at you know, especially out here on the West Coast, it's like I have friends who like grew up with like the most hippie parents and they're they're goddamn lawyers now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally flipped 180. Oh, absolutely. It's a seesaw thing. It's a pendulum. But, you know, that being said, I think that like um, uh, principles, right? Your your principles and your, your fundamental values, that's something that gets set at a very early age. And it is 100% an observational thing. You know, like I inadvertently became – kind of a mirror image of my parents as far as my my values are concerned even though i grew up being like god damn it <laughs> i will never be like these people but you know it's like now i'm all grown up i'm like you know kind of like those people <laughs> right yeah it's um you don't appreciate it sometimes till you see it through a different lens or you're removed from it or or whatever so yeah, well, my brother, I'm seeing my brother, I'm seeing his lens shift, right, to to be kind of what you're describing, where it's like my brother's relationship with my parents has changed dramatically in the year and a half since he's had his uh, his little baby because, yeah, all of a sudden he's like, oh, shit, this is what parenthood is. I get it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think it puts it into perspective, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, it's a definitely talk about being thrown into the fire nobody can prepare you for that first week oh my god at home yeah it's it's like what did i do right see that first week is probably what's kept me from having a child because <laughs> <laughs> i've seen that first week on a number of people like i've seen i've seen that shit it's just like man that's uh, it's like anything else man it's like anything else you just you get used to it it's like okay it's like it was it's more of a shock than it is really that bad it's um once you kind of get over that shock it's like okay like i can do this um and it only gets better from there to be honest so it's like the ice um, bucket challenge yeah right <laughs> i think the anticipation is worse than the actual the actual thing so Sure. I can imagine, man. Oh, dude. I'm glad we did this. I wish we got to chill LDI this year, but I'm sure that we'll get to chill eventually. Next time I'm in New York, I'm totally going to come down and uh, I'm going to make a point to come out and see you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Reach out for sure. And I'd be happy to to host you in Riddits and show you what we're up to. That's cool, man. And on the flip side, if you're ever in the Bay Area or even in California, just let me know. And uh I'll try and make it out. We can get a drink. Okay. Sure thing. Uh, I have a couple trips coming up next year. Might be in the Bay Area. We'll see. I'll let you know. 
yeah, just, just keep me posted, dude. Well, should we wrap it? Yeah, sounds good. All right, brother. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks again for doing this. I'll let you know when it's live and uh, I'll shoot you an email. I'm going to need like an image or something to, okay. you know, use as an icon and blah, blah, blah. All right. Can do. All right, brother. I'll talk All to right. you later. Yeah. Have a good one. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.